Get off. Get off. When we left off last episode, Tony had just been arrested outside the Key Bank in Seattle's U Village. His incredible spree was finally over. 30 banks in a single year. As Tony came down from his final high, cops cuffed him, drove him down to Seattle PD headquarters, and booked him into the system. Then two officers took Tony into a small windowless room with a table and three chairs. There's water for you. Why don't you stand up and face the wall over here? All right, go ahead and have a seat here. Sounds good, thanks. Tony waited there, alone, with his head resting on the table, until two detectives arrived. Uh, Anthony, my name's Lynn Carver. My colleague, Mike Malis. Carver is the detective you heard in the first episode. He was leading the task force that had been trying to catch a serial bank robber for more than a year. Malice, who works for the King County Sheriff's Department, was also on that task force. She was under better circumstances. I get it. Uh, Anthony, where are you staying right now? Uh, with my mom. Anybody else live there? Do you have young'uns or wife or anything like that? No, I'm divorced. I have two kids, but they don't live with me. Okay. Do they call you Anthony or do they call you Tony? They call me Tony. Can I call you Tony? Yes. You can call me Lynn. Okay. Um, Tony, you have the right to remain silent, and anything you say can be used against you in court. You have the right to talk to a lawyer and to have him present with you. This tape you're hearing, it's the beginning of a six-hour interrogation that took place the night after Tony's arrest. Six hours of questioning in which no attorney was ever present. But that's a story for a different episode. You understand everything I just said to you? Right now, we have something else to slow down and consider. You're probably wondering yourself, how did Tony end up here in February of 2014? locked up in this dingy room, facing life in prison. What went wrong? Do you need the bathroom or do you, anything like that? No? I could use a cigarette, but I'll, I'll get you a cigarette. I've never done this before. I've just seen it on TV. I thought it's worth asking because I'm nervous. The detectives found Tony some cigarettes. And Tony thought, well, that was easy. He decided to press his luck. Can I get some uh, heroin? <laughs> Heroin and a martini? No. I've got some Doritos, I think, maybe, or some chocolate chip cookies. You can't go grab a gram of heroin out of the evidence room? The evidence isn't. We don't keep it here. But, and no. This was only kind of a joke. Tony was now several hours from his last dose of heroin, which meant that any minute, the symptoms of withdrawal would start setting in. Every addict's worst nightmare. Are you using? What's it? You're using? Oh, yeah, I'm a heroin addict. Is that why we're where we are today? Yeah, probably. Okay. Are you working too, or is that stress also? No, I've worked. I worked at Boeing for 22 years. If you didn't catch that, it's Tony telling the detectives that before he started robbing banks, he had a long career at Boeing. The aerospace company. What'd you do there? I had an engineer. I'm sorry? Uh, engineer. Like weight and balance or design or something? Design engineer. 
Tony had fallen a long way from designing airplanes, literally flying high, to this. In this episode, we'll rewind the story to find out who Tony was and exactly how things went so sideways. On the surface, it, it doesn't look good, but I think when people really understand the whole story about what we went through with our addiction, it, it's, uh, there's a lot more to it, you know? I'm not saying that makes it right or justifies it, but it certainly, there's just more to the whole story. This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. And I'm Josh Dean. I, I deserve to be in prison for robbing banks. But Oxycontin took almost everything from me. I didn't deserve that. Part two, the spiral. Wow, a 747, greatest airplane in the world. It was the early 2000s and Tony Hathaway's life was going pretty well. He had a bright future engineering airplane galleys at one of the largest companies in the world. Clear sky for miles. Boeing's a great company. I mean, they I think they do a good job of looking out for people and offered so much opportunity and and I loved it man I loved the work I was doing I loved the people I was working with and being around the airplanes and yeah it was just it was awesome back then Tony was in a good place he'd met his wife a dental assistant named Anne Marie at a party when they were both young they got married on a beach in the Virgin Islands later they moved to Lake Stevens a small town about 45 minutes northeast of Seattle and built their own house there with great views of the Cascades. Oh, he was just uh, real fun-loving, easygoing, you know, at the time. <laughs> um, we had a lot of fun together, you know. The two of them had a busy social life. For Tony, it was mostly a sober one, too. Our whole marriage, he didn't even drink. You know, he was sober. Tony had been a drinker in high school, and such a bad one that he went to rehab as a teenager. I was just going to parties every weekend and not doing anything positive, and the... Man, the minute I went to treatment and got clean, I had 10 years of sobriety, and everything good happened in my life. Right. Everything. Got married, had kids, got a job at Boeing, built a house in Lake Stevens. He and Anne Marie had their first kid soon after getting married, a son named Connor. He's 28 now. Oh, growing up was great. Lots of vacations and Christmas presents, and yeah, it was fun. Um, my brother and I were really involved in sports, and I was heavily involved in dance. That's Madison, the daughter they had a few years later. She's now 24. I remember a lot of being outside and having a big imagination. You know, nowadays I feel like kids spend so much time on their phones and playing video games, but I remember a childhood without any of that, and um, he would always take us to the drive-in movies. He would take us fishing occasionally. My parents were always there supporting us at our sporting events, which was really nice. Tony was in the crowd, often tearing up. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he just adores his kids, you know, and, um, you know, very sappy. He would cry in a heart, you know, just any kind of thing with the kids growing up or anything. So, in fact, he got upset when I used the stroller first without him, for crying out loud.
So here's some. Which one is this? This is one that Madison put together for me. That's Connor Madison. Uh, that's in Hawaii. When we went to uh, oh, yeah, to Maui. That was, that was so crazy. nice, man. We stayed at this place called the Grand Wiley Resort. That's uh, right on the water. It was just, it was, was fat. Oh, he did easy now. That's a Camaro, bro. I'm sitting in Tony's living room, flipping through picture albums full of Connor and Madison Hathaway as happy little kids. T-ball games and hikes to waterfalls. That's up at Snoqualmie Falls. Catch your hair. And then these ones, let's just flip through. I mean, these are baby pictures of Madison. Or that's Connor actually right there. Little chubba wubba. This is me and Connor down at the uh, Arboretum, which is a really cool place. You can go down and rent uh, rowboats, canoes, kayaks, and just, yeah, it's super fun. The albums are filled with family memories. There are photos of Tony and Connor on a jet ski, Madison and sequined outfits at dance performances, camping trips with Connor stirring a pot of something over a fire. It looks fun and wholesome. You can see going through all this, you know, we just, Amory and I were always out doing stuff with the kids. This is uh, Lake Chelan. We rented a boat there. Remember that when mom ran into the boat with the... Oh, I do remember that. With yeah. the sea dew yeah, and put a hole in it. Cost me, Boom. Put a, hole cost right me a pretty penny. Did it sink? She was trying to hit the brakes. We flipped no, to a photo of Tony holding Connor when he's maybe one or two, sun-dappled and standing next to Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Me and my kids, Disneyland 98. We, Connor, went to Disneyland quite a bit. <laughs> but like most smiley vacation photographs, things were a lot more complicated behind the scenes. Tony may have thrown himself into his children and his job, but that didn't leave much energy for his marriage. I was a really good dad at the time. I wasn't the, the greatest husband. He worked long days and traveled a lot. In fact, his self-described addictive personality may have been in play when it came to his job, too. His priorities, if you asked Anne Marie, were pretty clear. You know, he was never home. He's a workaholic. Um, you know, and I just felt like a single mom. It was really stressful. So I didn't make enough time for, for the marriage. And uh, eventually, she just got to a point where enough was enough. In 2002... Ten years after they got married, Anne Marie asked for a divorce. But then we, we like, hey, we we're gonna be on the same page and um, try to be friends. And we disagreed that it's very important for the kids. This effort to be friends did mean a lot to the kids. Most of my friends wouldn't have even guessed that my parents were divorced. They still were best friends. I don't know what happened, man. I think I just I was so preoccupied with my job, you know, because I was working at Boeing full time plus overtime. It's understandable that the job was important to Tony. It was a dream job for a guy like him. A guy who only graduated high school. He never went to college. The break came through a friend of his dad's. One of my dad's friends had a connection to one of the drafting supervisors at Boeing up in Everett. Everett is a city about 30 miles north of Seattle. That's where Boeing's largest factory is located. And I had done drafting all through high school. You know, that was kind of my kind of my thing that was really something i was excited about so basically i submitted my senior project which was a house that i had designed you know all the floor plans and elevations and and whatnot he started at the bottom of the engineering ladder as a junior draftsman making six dollars and 82 cents an hour but tony thrived in this job and at boeing he rose through the ranks fast 
Within a few years, he was a full-time engineer and had 15 or 20 people working under him. At the time, I was the only person that had gotten moved into that position that didn't have an engineering degree. And I had some good people around me, you know, some really strong mentors kind of teaching me along the way, so. He was a real go-getter, hard-charging, hard-charging, smart guy. <laughs> this is Wayne Stanley, an aeronautical aerospace engineer who worked with Tony at Boeing back in those days. He says Tony's ambition was evident. Tony was a high, very high-level guy. He was an extremely accomplished and achieved high-level senior designer engineer. Uh, like in a level like, boy, to, to make that level is incredible. I don't know how he did it, what his history was, but he was a very high-level guy. And I got assigned my first account, which was Virgin Airlines 747 project. It was, man, it was just great. I got promoted to that position. I started traveling all over the world. This was sweet travel, too. I've been to Paris, France, when I was working the Air France account. I went to Thailand a few times. I went to United Arab Emirates. It was an amazing career. You know, you're traveling all over the world. You're staying at the nicest hotels. You're eating at the finest restaurants. Always flying business class. And uh, it's great. Man, it was best job ever. And I loved it. Every time he came back from his work trips, he would always have really cool souvenirs for my brother and I, and I still have all those and have collected them and, and think they're really neat. That's what I did for the next 10 years, or 11 years, basically, until things went south, you know? Before we get too far into Tony's story, I should probably explain something about our interviews. The recordings are a little patchwork, because, of course, Tony was in prison when we first met, and then on the other side of the country, and then there was COVID. So we had to talk a bunch of different ways, on the phone, in cars, from various apartments, on different microphones and recorders. Hello? How's that? What happened? <laughs> I had the headphones on backwards. <laughs> I had a 50-50 chance, too. Eventually, we worked out some best practices. I sent him a nice Zoom recorder so he could record the interviews on his end. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now I got you. And he borrowed Connor's headphones. That is, when Connor wasn't using them to play Call of Duty. Got all the technology worked out? Oh, yeah. Just like a, my little home studio here. I got the headset. So you're recording and, it, and the numbers are going up? And Yep. We had many conversations about when things were good, about this golden era of his life, when Tony had his family, his job, and a purpose. But we also talked a lot about his problems and mistakes. I asked him if he could pinpoint exactly when things started to go south, as he likes to say. He knew precisely the moment. It started with a sports injury. Well, some of the guys that I worked with at Boeing had a little uh, pickup roller hockey game they used to play out in the parking lot at Boeing in the evening after work, you know. And so they talked me into coming out there. I went and bought roller blades, and I went and bought a hockey stick and some elbow pads and all that shit. You know, we're out there playing, having fun, and I got hit by one of the guys that I worked with, and my roller blades came out from under me, and I landed on an extruded curb right on my Ow. tailbone. Ow. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was, I, honest to God, I thought I was paralyzed. My legs went numb for a couple minutes, and it was, it was bad. I had to go to the emergency room, and I had a hematoma about the size of a softball on my lower back from where I landed. An MRI revealed serious damage, a ruptured disc, 
it was, I mean, it was brutal. Like there was days when my back would go out and I literally couldn't even get out of bed. You know, I couldn't get up to take a shower. I couldn't reach down to put my shoes and socks on or- Like a sharp pain or a kind of- Yeah, extremely sharp, excruciating. The damage was so severe that Tony ended up having two surgeries, neither of which did the trick. They'd help at first, but ultimately the underlying problem just wouldn't go away. To help Tony with this chronic pain, his doctor wrote him a prescription. They put me on pain medication because at the time, I think they were recommending against having another surgery right away. And that's when I started getting prescribed Oxycontin. Well, to me, it was just the medication. This is what my doctor prescribed me. And it was a miracle drug. You've surely heard that name, Oxycontin. To Tony, Oxycontin may have seemed like a miracle drug, but it would prove to be quite the opposite. This little round pill fueled one of the most disastrous public health issues of our time, America's opioid crisis. More Americans now die every year from drug overdoses than they do from motor vehicle crashes. The majority of those overdoses involve legal prescription drugs. Since Obama said this in 2015, opioid overdose deaths have gotten even worse, especially with the coronavirus pandemic. And because Tony's undoing follows the larger story of the opioid crisis so closely, I wanted to understand it better too. For starters, what is an opioid? You hear the term thrown around all the time, but I didn't know how to define it. Opioids are pretty much medicines that come from opium. Opium is the sap from the poppy plant. This is Dr. Andrew Kolodny, one of the country's go-to experts on the opioid epidemic. He's been working on this issue for almost two decades. I'm basically thinking about the opioid crisis, if not working on it, almost all the time. Uh, Unfortunately, I've watched the crisis get worse every year uh, since I began working on it. From the beginning, opiates have served as both a gift and a curse. In ancient Mesopotamia, people cultivated the poppy and called it the joy plant. Later, in the American Civil War, morphine derived from the poppy was administered to injured soldiers. Many would then go on to become badly addicted. But the seed of the modern opioid crisis was really planted by a pharmaceutical company that completely changed the way medicine was marketed. We know it today as Purdue Pharma. Early on, the company sold laxatives and prescription earwax remover. But in the 1950s, it was bought by three doctors, the Sackler brothers, who had a knack for marketing. More than anything, the company revolutionized drug branding and advertising. And by the 1980s, the star of their show was basically morphine in pill form. Now, opiates are powerful. Doctors know this. And through most of the 20th century, they doled out prescription opioids sparingly, only in severe cases. These are important medicines for easing pain at the end of life. For example, uh, someone who might have metastatic cancer immediately after surgery, or if someone has had a very serious accident. But Purdue had a problem. If its drug was only used to treat injuries and end-of-life cancer pain, the company's profits would be limited too. It's hard to have a blockbuster drug when everyone who takes it will soon be dead. Purdue Pharma were recognizing that far more profit could be made if they came up with an opioid that was marketed not for end-of-life care, but for common, moderately painful conditions. Conditions like arthritis, fibromyalgia, 
And you guessed it, low back pain. I mean, my back was, it was brutal. Yeah, extremely sharp, excruciating pain. If they came up with an opioid for common, moderately painful conditions, they could make a lot more money. So Purdue took a look at a drug they'd already made, MS Cotton, a morphine pill wrapped in a time-release coating to make the effects hit slower and last longer. Then, they changed the inside of the pill to contain pure oxycodone, which is like a chemical cousin to morphine, except considerably stronger. And they rebranded it as Oxycontin. Once it got approved, then they started to market that drug very aggressively. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Often, it will be an opioid medication. Our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids. They don't wear out, they go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects. In the late 1990s, Purdue's marketing slogan for OxyContin was, the one to start with and the one to stay with. And patients who took it really thought it was a miracle, a lifesaver, at first. This clip is from a promotional video Purdue sent to 15,000 doctors in 1998. It featured seven patients describing how OxyContin had dramatically improved their lives. This man is Johnny Sullivan, who took 70 milligrams of OxyContin a day to help his lower back pain. I got my life back now. Now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. And before, even a good day was hell. I mean, I couldn't enjoy nothing. But now I can enjoy myself. That's when I said wonderful. Purdue wasn't just hawking their new pill to doctors. They were selling them a story as well. When OxyContin is released, it's released with this multifaceted campaign to change the way the medical community thought about opioids as a class of drug. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. Much of Purdue's marketing was focused on why OxyContin is safer or better than, than other opioids. That was totally not true. It's more potent than morphine. It also gets into the brain faster. It has a more rewarding effect than morphine. But Purdue wanted to mass market OxyContin for common conditions like arthritis and dental pain. And to do that, it had to convince doctors and dentists it was safe and not addictive. Here's another example of the kind of marketing Purdue was sending out to physicians. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. Yeah, wrong again. In the years that followed, Kolodny began to notice more messages. Suddenly, it seemed like the predominant narrative was this. Opioid pills like OxyContin are not only safe, but the humane answer to an epidemic of patient suffering. It sounded off to me. It, it seemed strange. All of these messages were coming to the medical community, not just from Purdue Pharma's sales reps, you know, attractive sales reps who visit us in our offices and, you know, buy lunch for the staff and, and schmooze with the prescribers. But it went far beyond that. The messages were coming to doctors from medical education classes, lectures taught by key opinion leaders who had financial ties to opioid manufacturers from their hospitals, from their state medical boards. We were hearing these messages from our professional societies, 
articles in medical journals that in some cases were ghostwritten by the pharmaceutical industry. From every direction, you're hearing that if you're an enlightened doctor in the know, you're going to be different from those stingy puritanical doctors of the past. You'll understand that opioids are a gift from Mother Nature and should be used much more for just about any complaint of pain. Kaladni may not have fallen for the prescription opioid mania himself, but many of his peers did. A lot of what the medical community was hearing about opioids, I think, struck many physicians as not quite making sense, but nobody wanted to say anything. Nobody really wanted to say, hey, the emperor has no clothes on, you know, because everybody is, is going along with this. So Purdue launched OxyContin and its marketing machine in 1996. And from a sales perspective anyway, it was a massive success, just as they'd hoped, a blockbuster. And from 1996 up until around 2012, there was a soaring increase. To me, it was just the medication. This is what my doctor prescribed me. More and more, people all over the country, like Tony Hathaway, got that prescription and began a long, painful descent. Within just four years of being introduced, OxyContin sales grew from $48 million to $1.1 billion. Prescriptions shot up, followed by thousands of opioid-related deaths around the country. Kolodny saw the numbers. The increase was so rapid in some parts of the country that it, it looked like maybe there was a mistake in the data. I mean, could this be real? But I knew it was real because I was seeing this also in my clinical practice. As Kolodny dug into the data, he expected to see demographics that overlapped with a crack epidemic, which had been plaguing U.S. cities since the 1980s. But this wave of overdoses was spreading much farther, much wider. I thought they would likely be 40, 50-year-old um, Latino or African-American men from, from very poor neighborhoods. And instead, they were people from middle-class communities, um, young and old. Uh, and they, were, they had all become opioid addicted uh, through prescription opioid use. One big reason this problem was spiking with a different demographic was medical racism. Multiple studies from places like the National Institutes of Health have found that doctors are considerably more likely to prescribe opioids to white patients than black patients. And it was kind of like a light bulb went off, like, aha, that, that's it. You know, this is, this is why we're in the midst of this serious problem that's getting worse. It's, it's the medical community, it's us. The guilty parties in this crisis range from unwitting co-conspirators to outright villains. Either way, it's a long list. Purdue execs and salespeople, FDA officials, medical researchers and scientists, doctors, dentists, physicians assistants, pharmacists. There's plenty of blame to go around. But to the patients like Tony, who are in real pain, these pills seemed like a godsend. I mean, honestly, it's like a miracle drug. I'm like, yeah, this is working. This is taking care of my pain problem, allowing me to go to work, allowing me to travel and do all the things I need to do. What Kolodny was seeing in his patients, Tony was experiencing firsthand on the ground. The family doctor who filled his scripts seemed to Tony like a good guy, someone he trusted. Like I said, he was a family doctor. He wasn't a pain management specialist. And I think, I mean, I think his heart was in the right place. He felt like he was, was just trying to help me, you know. 
This is such a critical thing to understand about the opioid crisis. The gateway to addiction for so many Americans was a medical doctor. It was a prescription handed over by someone they trusted. And so he just kept on prescribing it. I don't think he knew enough about how bad this drug was at the time, you know. I mean, Purdue Pharma sure as fuck knew, but I don't, I don't think my family doctor knew, you know. Before OxyContin, painkillers were basically just aspirin with like five milligrams of oxycodone mixed in. But even OxyContin's smallest dose had twice as much and no over-the-counter stuff as filler. It was pure, uncut narcotic. I initially was prescribed uh, 10 milligram OxyContins. I think it was two or three times a day. And then after a few months, they up it to 20 milligrams and then to 40 milligrams. And then within about a year, I'm getting 80 milligrams. 80 milligrams. That's the maximum dosage allowed by law. And at that point, Tony had been on OxyContin for over a year. Anybody who takes an opioid for a few days starts developing physiological dependence. Your body becomes dependent on it, meaning that without the drug, you start to feel sick. The potential for addiction is so high with these drugs that for some, it really doesn't take much time at all, days or weeks. And before Tony knew what hit him, it had been months. So I became addicted through my prescription medication without even realizing what was happening to me until it was it was just too late, you know? But once you become addicted to it, it's no longer a choice. You, you don't wake up every morning and go, oh, I, I can make a choice to use this or not use this. You're not chasing a high anymore. You're chasing not being sick. And, you, it, and, and it goes on every single day. I think most people don't realize this about opioid addiction. Or at least I sure didn't before I met Tony. And it's important. Most people addicted to opioids don't use them to get high. They need them just to feel normal. If they stop taking the drugs, even for a short period, they feel horribly sick. And that sickness worsens until it's unbearable. You've heard it called withdrawal, but most addicts have a more descriptive word for this dreadful state. Dope sick. It's all bad. You've got cold sweats. You get really sick to your stomach. You feel like you're going to throw up or you start getting diarrhea. And you can't do anything. You can't function. When you're addicted to opiates, your life gets boiled down to avoiding dope sickness at all costs. When I say sick, I'm not just talking about the flu-like symptoms that everybody understands to be part of opioid withdrawal. There's also very severe anxiety when people are running out of opioids or when they stop using. People feel like they're going to die. Yeah, it's, it's terrible, man. It just ends up that, it ends up that you're really living, your whole life is you're living about eight hours at a time. This thing Tony's mentioning, about eight hours, was also part of Purdue's lie. The company claimed one dose provided 12 hours of relief, but many patients started feeling pain again at the eight-hour mark, or even sooner. This worsened, too, over time, as patients developed a tolerance to the medication. So they began to take more, and doctors began to prescribe more than the recommended dosage, too, which Purdue fully encouraged. So eventually, the 80-milligram pills prescribed by his family doctor weren't enough. Tony had to resort to other methods, methods he was ashamed of that got the dope into his system faster. First, he started crushing the pills up and snorting them. When that wasn't enough, he started smoking, heating the powder on pieces of foil and inhaling the fumes. 
And this exact thing, the slippery slope Tony was on, it was happening all over America, in places that had never seen widespread drug addiction. Addicts were suddenly everywhere, hidden in plain sight. If you'd pass Tony on the street, if he were your neighbor or your basketball coach, you probably wouldn't even notice the kind of hell he was in. His new girlfriend had no idea, and they lived together. Honestly, I thought it was just the typical old man (laughs) back situation. This is Valerie Benedict Carlton. Tony is 15 years older than Val, as he calls her, but they hit it off right away when they met at Tony's side business, a coffee kiosk he built by hand and named Taza de Vida, or Cup of Life. Tony and Val sparked. They fell in love and moved in together. Tony was great. He was extremely smart, it seemed like. He was successful, had his act together, had two children, knew what he was doing with his life. I mean, we just got along really well. They lived together throughout this period when Tony was sliding into addiction, and Val didn't see it. She knew that Tony had a prescription for his old man back situation, but she didn't realize he was hooked on it. So I had never really known of Oxy. I saw it in our house, like on the counter. Like it was nothing that he ever tried to hide. And why would Tony try to hide it? It was just his medication for his back. I mean, as long as I had my medication, I was fine. You know, I'm leading these design reviews. I'm going to all these meetings with galley suppliers and we're having design reviews and I'm getting through all that just fine. But as soon as I don't have my medication, then I'm in trouble. Val started noticing a shift in Tony, the fun, kind person she started dating and had been with for years. Now he was just constantly on edge. He would explode on little things. Like, just he was very hot-tempered. And I'm smoking it at this point. I'm waking up in the morning. I'm smoking some Oxycontin, and I'm getting ready for work. I go to Boeing. I'm in my meetings doing, just doing my job, you know. But by lunchtime, I'm getting dope sick again. I have to have another pill or I'm just spiraling out of control. And then on my lunch break, I go out to my car, I drive down the street, grab something for lunch, smoke some more Oxycontin. Maybe I gotta go meet up with someone to buy some more pills because I'm running low or whatever. And then I go back to work and I just keep doing the same thing. You know, for the longest time I was able to hide it from everybody, you know, even at work. But smoking the pills meant that Tony was burning through his supply faster and faster. His prescription couldn't possibly keep up with his habit. And then I went and found another doctor that was also prescribing me uh, two or three 80s a day. The second doctor, his name is Delbert Whetstone. And he was a real doctor with a medical degree in his own medical practice. He was specifically an osteopathic physician, but in name only. Whetstone ran what we now call a pill mill clinic. This is basically open drug dealing. Everybody knew about Dr. Whetstone. You know, it was a well-known thing because pretty much everybody was going there because he would he would write a script for anybody. As long as you come in and pay him, I think it's $150 or $250 for the appointment, cash only, and then you go in and see him for 30 seconds. No exam, no, no x-rays, no nothing. He's just going to come in, shake your hand. How you doing? Okay, you need a refill. Okay, have a good day. And then he writes you a script for Oxy-80s. But he will only give you a two-week script, right? Because you got to come back two weeks later and pay him another 250 bucks or whatever it was to get the next two weeks script. That's as much as what's done would prescribe. This is what kept Tony coming back every two weeks. The whole lobby would be packed full of people 
addicted to Oxycontin. The cost of Tony's addiction was starting to become unmanageable, and it was taking a serious toll on his bank account. That's how Val finally caught on. I remember being at work one day, and tow truck came and repoed the car while I was at work. Apparently, Tony hadn't been making the payments in over six months. So that was kind of a red flag. Or the fact that, like, the mortgage wasn't getting paid, and they'd contact me about it, and, oh, I, I forgot, I'll take the payment now. As, as time went on, I could never explain why I was always running out of money when, when I'm making all this money, you know. And she doesn't realize that I'm spending it all on these pills, you know, always running out of money. I noticed it started getting a little worse, and then I started finding, like, cut-up straws in his bathroom drawer from, like, cleaning. So all these little things kind of all made sense in the end. By this time, from Val's point of view, Tony had become a completely different person. What, what was the drug using Tony like? Sweaty, just jumpy, just kind of out of it. He was always in a fog. I, I remember talking to him a few times, you know, just bawling my eyes out to him, just saying, you, you need to stop. You need to figure out a way to stop. Like, this is going to kill you. And him just always have an excuse, oh, yes, I am. It's not that bad. I'm not using that much. It's just... Was this pretty late in the process? Yeah, this was towards the end. Honestly, it's why we broke up. I mean, we didn't end on bad terms. I didn't hate the guy. It was just, I know you're using and you're lying about it. And I, I mean, I still loved him, but I just didn't want him <laughs> around me, if that makes sense. All the things Tony cared about were slipping away. He didn't want this, and yet he felt helpless to do anything about it. I mean, I knew I was in trouble because this shit had been going on for years, and I, re I really wanted to get off of it. Three different times I tried to just go actually to the detox for the weekend, you know, for a few days to see if I could kick it that way, but it, it, never, it, it never worked. It definitely didn't work. All three times... Tony went immediately from detox to score dope. I mean, I, I was trapped in this addiction and every day trying to figure out a way, you know, every day you wake up going, well, I'll figure it out tomorrow, you know? I mean, I, you know you're fucked. You know you know you are just, things are not good. You're, you're going in a terrible direction. Eventually, it got bad enough that Tony leveled with Boeing. He didn't want to lose that job, and he needed help. He wanted help. I went to my manager at Boeing and, and ex, you know, let her know that I was struggling. I had this addiction to these pain medications that I've been prescribed, and I needed to take a month off and go to treatment. And I was thinking this might just be the solution, but it wasn't. You know, when I got close to 22 days, a week away from being released from treatment, I already knew that I wasn't healed. I mean, I bought pills on the way home. And then soon after is when Purdue Pharma changed the formula on Oxycontin so that you couldn't crush the pills and smoke them anymore. You couldn't smoke them anymore. Put a pin in this moment, late 2010. This is arguably the single most important event in the opioid crisis. Purdue was starting to feel the heat for its part in the epidemic. 
they had to see the prosecution and class action lawsuits looming on the horizon. What's more, they were also facing a deadline. If they didn't update their patent within a few years, cheaper generic versions of Oxy would start eating away at their profits. So from Purdue's perspective, changing the formula was a win-win. They could protect their brand and stake out a nice PR claim. As if they were saying, see, we never meant for anyone to abuse our miracle drug. We fixed it. Except for addicts everywhere, it was a lose-lose. The updated pills were like space-age technology compared to the old ones, which seemed tailor-made for abuse. It's like a 12-hour pill. It's a slow release, right? It has a coating on it. But ironically, the coating, you can scrape right off with your fingernail, right? Right. And then now you just have pure oxycodone. You can use a pill cutter and cut it into chunks and smoke it on foil, or you can crush it up and snort it. But the new pills were tamper-proof, useless to many addicts. Okay, so now basically you can only just eat the pill. If you try to do anything to it, it just turns to like gel. So the old pills that Tony needed to function, to work, Purdue just stopped making them. Supplies dried up, and suddenly you could only get them illegally. The price skyrocketed. I mean, I was paying 100 bucks a pill. I was paying two, $300 a day just to stay well. You know, it was crazy. So what would you do? Pretend it's not Oxycontin we're talking about. Pretend it's just medicine for heart disease. And the pills that make your life bearable are suddenly impossible to find and insanely expensive. My guess is you'd try to find an alternative, legal or not, just to live. Like, what the fuck did they think was gonna happen? It's like that decision in itself created the heroin epidemic. Because it was after that that everybody that was addicted to Oxycontin switched to heroin. Plenty of Oxy users had already transitioned to heroin, which was cheaper and more readily available. But for so many others, like Tony, this was the turning point. He was making a grave discovery that Kolodny and other experts already knew, that Oxy and heroin are essentially the same thing. The effects of oxycodone and heroin are almost indistinguishable. There was a study that was done at Columbia University several years ago, and it was kind of like a blind taste test where they gave these heroin users different opioids to try and then asked them which you like the best. And in that study, the oxycodone actually beat out the heroin because basically they're the same drug. When you put yourself in an addict's shoes, switching to heroin seems almost reasonable, at least rational, especially when you consider the economics. The attorney who prosecuted Tony's robberies, Jason Simmons, has seen an awful lot of these cases, so he knows the math. Back then, oxy was... Uh, you know, a pill, I think it was like 80 bucks on the streets, but a paper, which is just a little bit of heroin, which will keep you from getting dope sick, is $5. So people start to use heroin because it's rational at that point just to not get sick. But you can't just buy heroin at Rite Aid. So how did Tony, who'd never even seen the stuff, suddenly get his hands on it? When I imagine someone scoring heroin for the first time, I picture like a dark alley, some shady deal going down behind a pawn shop. Turns out, Tony didn't have to go very far to find a fix at all. He just happened to walk into his son's bedroom at the exact right or wrong time. I'm talking about Connor. By then, he was 17. He comes to my room and says, what are you guys doing? I'm like, uh, smoking. (laughs) That's next week on Hooked. Full-time junkie. Every day. Shooting heroin. 
zero to 100, just like that. Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campsite Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands. And Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Field producing on this episode by Bethany Denton and Kyle Norris. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. Additional sound design for this episode by Rod Sherwood. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.